Before we get going, I want to take a moment to tell you about something really exciting for high school sports fans across the country. SB Live Sports has launched a free iPhone and Android app featuring the latest high school sports news here in Washington and across the country. With the SB Live Sports app, it's now even easier to follow your favorite team and tailor your experience to your interests. With real-time scores and news alerts, as well as video highlights, podcasts, photo galleries, rankings, game coverage, and much more, the app delivers on the content you want in one convenient place. The SB Live Sports app features exclusive content from on-the-ground reporters across the country, and it's the number one source for Washington high school sports fans with coverage from reporters Todd Millis, myself, Andy Bueller, as well as SB Live's preeminent basketball mind and recruiting expert Dan Dickow. The SB Live Sports app is available at no charge in the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. The SB Live Sports app. Download it today. success. It's all about their vision and then making sure you align their vision with their work ethic. I wanted to be the hero, man. I wanted to save kids. That was my job. That's what I was going to do. This is SB Live's The Prep Slab with TJ Cotterell, the podcast where you will hear authentic conversations about how things get done in high school athletics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit scorebooklive.com Washington to access all the Prep Slab podcasts as well as statewide high school sports news, features, photos, highlights, and more. Well, we are so excited today to get a chance to talk to uh, one of the greats, one of the Hall of Famers, uh, Gary Wooster-Barth, former coach at Stellicum High School with more than 30 years uh, there at one school. And in that time, massed 567 uh, career wins, one of the 10 most winning as coaches of all time in state history. They uh, won a state title, uh, reached another one. Just as steady, routine-oriented as you get as a coach and retired just a couple years ago. And we're so unfortunate to get to talk to Coach Wispar today about the topic of just lessons learned in coaching and build a chance to talk about how the game has changed over the years. So, so Coach, thank you so much uh, for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, the first question just – what do you believe it felt like for players to be coached by you? And why did you coach? I think for the players part, they knew I was a demanding coach that if we were practicing stuff at practice, I expected to proceed on the performance of the game. I think they, or I hope they thought I was fair in what I did and how I tried to work with the kids and all that. The reason I got into coaching was because uh, the game gave so much back to me and I wanted to teach young people or give them an outlet or something to be able to test their skills and maybe get into coaching too. And it's been very rewarding over the years to have players come back at our alumni game and go, hey, coach, I'm coaching. Can you sit down and show me that out-of-bounds play we ran back in 1979? And I'm going, sure. And so that it was just a thing of I was a coach. Um, I don't know. I think our friendships developed over the time. But in terms of the coaching, it was more accountability of making sure that you were doing your part as a team to help us be successful. No, that's awesome. I'm, I'm curious, um, when you first started, um, you, you were at Washington High School initially, correct? And then you went to Stellicum? Correct. Um, correct. 
So when you start, who were some of your your inspirations in coaching and mentors in coaching when you started? And what kind of roles did they play in, in helping you form your philosophies and determine how you wanted to coach? Well, my junior high coach, Jim Barner, was a huge factor for me um, in developing my game and just the discipline of the game and what it took to, to play, the skills that you need to have. Very skill-oriented. Bob Ross was my head coach. Hall of Famer. Frosty Westman was a good friend of mine. My um, Brad and Scott were friends, and I dated his daughter Sue. So I got a lot of uh, rubbing elbows with Frosty and his philosophies and stuff that he did. That really helped out. How, how much of their influences maybe influenced you in in the way you coached? Did do you felt did you feel like you were taking a lot of things from them, or did you find ways to make it your own? I think you have to be your own true person. I th- I think I watched him and sometimes maybe said I wouldn't do that or I do this or I like that or I don't like that. But you've got to do something you can back up yourself as a person. You can't try to be somebody you're not. I couldn't be a Frosty. There's no way. As great as he was, I could not be that positive and stuff. There's times I was going to have to lower the boom and let people know they weren't doing their job. So being yourself, finding yourself and knowing what kind of coach you want to be and not Altering that is very important when it comes to answering questions about what you did as a coach uh, with a team on the floor. You know, I'm curious about this, too, because we hear coaches talk so often about some of the, the pressures of coaching high school sports today and like this burnout factor that exists and that the responsibilities and the expectations placed on a high school coach uh, seemingly increase with every season. How much of that can you empathize with based on some of your experiences throughout your career at Stellicum? Can you talk about like what those responsibilities and expectations look like for a coach today? Can can you understand that a little bit and empathize with it? I can. You know, it used to be fill out your form and turn in your physical and away we go. Now you gotta sign a disclaimer and a rule sheet and a a medical form and a refusing to argue with the coach form and, and so many pa- much paperwork. You really are an administrator as a coach to start the season. I always tell the kids, I hate paperwork, so let's get it done and get it out of the way. Don't drag your feet or I'm going to get ticked off because I don't want to sit there and be going through papers in the middle of the third game trying to make sure you're eligible or not. So that's been a huge thing just with the lawsuits and all that. The other thing is you have to have your own set of rules. You have to have your own guidelines. You got to meet with parents. You got to let them know what's expected. And so um, that's another thing that's on your plate. And so, yeah, there's a lot of responsibilities and everybody wants to know why. In the olden days, the parents were olden days now. Did you hear me say that? Olden days, isn't that terrible? Back when I first started, most of the parents gave me their kids, let me coach them, and that was it. And I really valued the time with the kids personally and myself. So we always had a locked door policy that no one could come in the gym while we were coaching. Just so we had the kids' attention and could work with them for an hour other than Maybe dad tell them what to do. And when, if you had parents there, they'd call them over and talk to them. And it just wasn't a good atmosphere. But to do that, then you have to have a form that says, well, what if I do want to come to practice? Can I come to practice? And what are the steps I have to do to do that to prepare? So you have, you have to have a form for everything. And you have to make sure everything's all covered in that. And so those were a lot of things. I can understand that a lot. And now with this stuff going on right now, I don't know how you do it. I mean, do you have a user fee? Uh, and how much are you going to charge a kid to play when you have half of a season? And when you have to pay to play, there's an expectation with that second part you have to play. And so th- those are hard factors now today that 
didn't really have to cross that bridge too much back in the time I first started. You know, when you say olden days, you're really just that's just supposed to mean that you're you're wise beyond your years. You know, definitely definitely still a young definitely still a young what, sixty four right now? I'm sixty six, thank you. A young see, you know, you seem like you're at least two years younger than that, that's for sure. Uh, I'm curious if you talk more about that relationship with parents. Though. You, you talk about that. How did you navigate that throughout your career? And what did you see as, what, what did you believe should be the parents' role in your program? And how did you navigate making that those expectations clear to them? Well, I think I should tell you a story that happened my second year of coaching that probably helped set the, the tone a little bit. Had a parent up in the stands who was a little vocal about what should be going on in the game. And so I took his kid out and told the kid to go up and stand, sit with his dad and find out what he wanted because he kept yelling at him on the court. So the kid said, are you serious? I said, yes. So in his uniform, the kid walked up about four more rows and sat down next to his dad and said, what do you want? His dad goes, what are you talking about? He goes, well, coach says you're yelling at me on the floor and you can't go back in until I find out what you want so you'll quit yelling. Those kind of stories get around real quick, you know, and with kids in that. But um, I, again, You've got to be careful with parents because if you try to be their friend, then there's an expectation that something's going to come in return. And you need to let them know right away that I'm coaching your son because I love the game of basketball. And I have 36 sons out there, not just one. So your opinion about what I'm doing is going to be skewed on your own personal experience with your own kid. I've got to watch out for 36 of them, not just one. And your son's included in that 36, but I can't give all the attention or all the things you'd like me to do to just that one person. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm curious then if you go on to this point here, because that kind of coincides with also probably how you handle discipline as well. Um, so how, how, how did you go about disciplining players in your program? And, and did your philosophy on discipline maybe change over the years? And how should other coaches handle accountability and discipline, you think, today? Well, at the start of my career uh, at Stillham High School, we had the MVP of the state tournament who was a junior. Uh, when he was the MVP, he's coming back for his senior year. Awesome player. My first game in the gym of Stillicum High School. And I found out that day that he'd gotten an F on his English because he didn't turn his paper in, which made him ineligible. So I told him he wasn't going to play, not even going to suit up because I didn't want the – I didn't want myself to want to put him in the game if I felt he needed to be in there or not. So I just said, you're not going to suit up. So for the first two games, he didn't play. The MVP of the state tournament, I thought people were about ready to go through the roof discipline-wise. But I said to him, I said, so you're saying you want the kid to fail in his English class so he can't go to college? Well, no. I said, okay. Well, then we have to deal with it that way. So very, very uh, consistent. Very, very um, goal-oriented as a team on all the discipline that I tried to do. And sometimes I would bring the team in on some of the issues if they felt they needed to. But a lot of times they just left that to me and sided with the kid like you should always. You know, That's how you develop a team is when kids get disciplined, you hope the rest of them will rally around him and be a, a t- good teammate. And so um, has it changed over the years? I've tackled different tactics. But I've I've tried to be the same type of coach and the rules to stay the same, although I've given, I'm sure, some latitude. I mean, we used to have rules about what socks you could wear, what shoes you could wear, what shirts you could wear, and all that. And as I got towards the end of my career, 
and even when I was in the middle of my career, some kids would come up and go, Coach, I can get those shoes on base a lot easier than I can buy them from the shoe rep that comes here. Can we just go get them on base? And I thought, you know, that's – so kids would make good points about rules, and I'd be willing to listen and maybe change. And even if I thought they were right, I still made them justify it so that the discipline wouldn't be just something I was throwing out once in a while when I felt like it. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we hear of the adage of like these old coaches, that it's kind of like this militaristic style of coaching, but you just talk about that being flexible and, and you know, you have your rules, but um, you're able to work with kids if, if there's a reason that warrants it. Um, yeah, I'm curious, did you see more of that over the years? Because so you also hear kind of coaches talk about, well, you, we can't be tough on them anymore because they just transfer or they, they quit or they're not going to start, they're not going to. They don't even show up for it. How did you deal with like some of those stereotypes of maybe some of the kids today as the generation of players in your program kind of changed over the years? When I took the job at Stillicum, I had to realize that within 10 miles, I had five schools a kid could go to. Curtis, Lakes, Clover Park, Charles Wright, or Stillicum. And I always had this attitude in our coaching staff, always had the attitude, we want to coach Stillicum kids. We want you to be here. And if you don't want to be here, then really we don't really want to coach you because you know what? You're always going to be criticizing or second guessing or bad mouthing. We want the Stillicum kids to stay here and coach them. And some kids would try to transfer down from lakes and I just, I wouldn't put up with it. And so the reputation got around pretty quick that, Hey, don't go down there. He's not going to accept you unless you're a Stillicum kid. And I, I was glad about that. I want the Stillicum kids to feel that way because it was their program. Did kids transfer back and forth? Sure. They did. Some of them were legit reasons to transfer. Some I don't even know why they did. I lost some to Curtis, and some from Lakes came down to us. And I mean, it just happens. And I never worried about that. I just said, if you know, too many coaches worry about guys that got away versus what they've got on the floor themselves. I just wanted to coach the Stillicum kids that were there. And the people would always ask me, "Well, do you hope he stays at Stillicum?" I go, "You know what? I'll coach." the people that are there on the first day of school. I'm not going to worry about it the rest of the time. And to be honest with you, uh, when I showed up at Stillicum, Rod Watley, who was the MVP, and Jeff Staten, there were rumors that they were going to go to Curtis. So I took them out to lunch at Denny's and sat them down and said, guys, if you're going, go tomorrow because I want to get started on my program and I want to know whether you're in or out. Mm-hmm. They both looked at me like, coach, what are you talking about? We're going to go there. I said, that's what I thought. Thank you, guys. See you on Monday. But, uh, you know, that's how I that, dealt with it. That, that's so encouraging and refreshing here. I don't feel like we get the sense that, that every coach deals with that the same way around this day. And um, obviously, I, I, without the exact data on this, it's hard to definitively say, but it just seems like there's more of this player transferring and movement that occurs in the high school game today than maybe happened in previous decades. Um, how much, I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but how much did that impact you and your coaching? And was it a challenge dealing with this, the frequency of player transfers, especially in your area? Like you said, you got these five other schools they could go to. What was the impact on, to the, on, to, um, on that and your, your coaching? And how did you deal with some of that? Well, Coach Hayes, who's my assistant for 34 years with me, we always used to laugh because at summer league games you'd hear, hey, my kid's coming to your school. And we just start laughing because by the time September came, they were back at their regular school where they were. They were just kind of shopping around during the summer see what happens. Um, I think it's happened more now because people want a result out of what you do versus just letting the kid learn a team sport. Um, I had one player that did come to our school. He'd been in another school before that, and he went to another school after that. So in three years, he played for three different high schools. 
I'm not going to give you his name because he's a great kid, but his parents wanted him to find a program where he'd be successful. He was successful for us, first team all league, lean scorer, but we didn't make it to the next level that year that he was there. We lost in the state semi, or excuse me, the uh, district quarterfinals. And so they moved him to another school. You're going to have people like that, and you just have to understand that. The idea that if you commit to all that and, and that's your sole reason for trying to get players, it's going to end up hurting you really bad at the end because they will go away and they won't buy into your program. We want kids that wanted to buy into Stilicon program, be excited, do the things for the Stilicon people do. And um, I know even at the colleges today, they try to do the one and done, and some of them are successful at it. A lot of them are sitting at home not being very successful either. That is absolutely for sure. Yeah, it's it's not a, it's not a ticket to the big dance anymore. Um, it, yeah, that's for sure. Um, I'm curious about this. I mean, you won that state championship your first year at Stellicum, 1985. Then you spent 34 more years all at that school, winning more than 500 career games, which is among the most in state history. But let's go back to that first year. What do you remember most from that season, taking over a team that had won the title the previous year too? And what did it take for you to to make that um, transition successful in guiding that team? What do you remember most from that first year and just trying to to make that transition successful? Well, it sounds weird, but I was so um, caught up in trying to do the right things as my first year of coaching to meet the philosophies and ideals that I wanted to see in a program that I really wasn't concentrating that we were winning the state title. I was more about making sure that everybody was to practice on time, got their good grades in school, uh, made sure that they were showing up for the games dressed properly the way we wanted them to, and that they were acting properly on the court and so on. And so the games themselves just became the sidebar to this thing I was trying to do in terms of starting a program. And I was very lucky. I had a great group of guys. I mean, I think anybody could have coached them the state title, to be honest with you. They were that good. And I'd love to say I did this masterful job of coaching, no mistakes, nothing. I don't think that's true, but I'll tell you, it was one of the most enjoyable seasons I ever had. And uh, I think it, it, was, it ran, I ran into some difficulties during this, the season, but like I had a couple of people square off me in the faculty uh, restroom and threatened that if I substituted a lot during the state tournament, lost the state tournament, that'd probably be my job. So I had that other side of the fence there on that. Wow. Uh, yeah, well, there's a successful program. They want me to screw it up. And so um, just had a great bunch of guys that bought into everything we did and what we wanted to do. Rod Wiley, I mentioned his name. He was an awesome kid. Uh, being the MVP, obviously you could go to him the next year and just score 25 points every single game. We had to develop the rest of our team. So I sat Rod down and said, Rod, I'm probably going to take our offense and run it away from you. You're going to get a lot of weak side rebounds for points, but you're not going to get a lot of one-on-one -on -one stuff to start with till I tell you, is that okay? And he said, yeah, it's fine, coach. Thanks. And uh, it was amazing because at the state tournament in the semifinals, I said, Rod, we need to have you play now. And he went out and got 25 points and 22 rebounds. So, um, he's, I mean, we got guys like that. You can't go wrong. What did you learn most from that first season about like that your coaching identity and philosophy and what did you most take away after that next year and what adjustments did you make to um, how you wanted to be as a coach? The first two years were kind of uh, tough because it was those, those guys we had. And then um, you start thinking every year is going to be like that. 
And every team's going to be that way. And it's a rude awakening when you come to that next year and all of a sudden the players aren't acting like those players. They're not as skilled, not as disciplined. And now you really got to lean on those things that you've been kind of uh, keeping true to yourself about being a coach and make sure those ideals stay the same way. That was the first time I realized there's not every game is going to be the state championship for us. It was weird holding that ball after one year, though, and looking at my high school coach, Bob Ross, who never got a chance to do that. He got third a couple of times, but it's just like, wow, what am I doing here? Well, I told you in the pre-call, like, you know, my school hadn't been there, Sultan High School, and, you know, since 1954 until the 2009 season. So, you know, how just special just to even be there. And it's probably tough for you going and you're winning a title the first year and you're thinking, wow, this is going to be easy. I don't know if you know about that game, but that was the first game in Tacoma Dome the state championship was. We played at the UPS Fieldhouse through the semifinals, and then they moved the final game to the Tacoma Dome. And the logistics of just doing that, I was so consumed with that, I didn't really realize I was coaching the state final, trying to find out where the lockers were. Uh, if I can tell you a quick story, I hope I don't take too much of the time, but our team, I didn't know. Um, I always traveled from to the games by myself because I had all the gear in my van. And so the kids didn't have to pack up the van a real lot. But they would stop at the 7-Eleven, have a Slurpee before the game every time. Well, the night of the state final at Tacoma Dome, they stopped at their favorite place to get their Slurpee and the machine was broken. So they had to drive around and find another 7-Eleven and get the Slurpee. Well, meanwhile, I've got the director running the state tournament. The girls' game's getting over, and they're getting ready to cut down the nets, and I'm sitting in the locker room with all the gear and no team. And he came, Corky Frady was running the show at that time. He came in and said, where's your team? And I said, I don't know. And he goes, you've got to be kidding me. I said, I really don't know where they are because I didn't know they were doing this beforehand. Well, they showed up about five minutes later. Um, I just can't imagine the stress of sitting in that locker room by yourself <laughs> waiting for your team to show up. And you're going, okay, we got to get warming up. Where's my team? It's a state championship. You're already stressed enough. I can't imagine that. What must have been going through your head? Um, yeah, you know, it's just like this is what I decided to buy into here. This is what I want to do as coach, sitting here on this bench in this locker room. All the uniforms laid out, nobody there. All the stuff written on the board, nobody there. I thought, and the thing was, we went out and played and won the game by 25 points. I was like, why did I even worry about that? <laughs> For sure. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. I just can't, yeah, I can't imagine what must have been going through your mind. Like, where's my team? Yeah. <laughs> I felt more stupid saying, I don't know. That was the biggest thing. You're the head coach. You don't know where your team yeah. is. Where's your team? I don't know. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. I'm curious about this to you, to you, what were some of the most important qualities you felt you needed to be a great head coach? Well, I always believed any rule I made, I should be able to follow myself with the kids. And so that was very important that I had to be the example for them, meaning to an extreme. So they understood that that's the way you're supposed to act and what you're supposed to do. Cause teenage kids can be a little flexible once in a while, but not a real lot when it comes to that stuff. The other thing was um, I just felt like in coaching, I wanted to be, I mean, I was John Wooden era. I was the Mike Krzyzewski era. You look at those guys and you see Marv Harshman. Um, you watch those guys coach. And I went to their camps and, you know, it just was, that's what you wanted to be, was one of them. 
And so I always tried to act. I always dressed professionally to represent the community. Um, I always made sure that the kids were always presentable when they took the floor, representing their school and their community and their families. It was a lot more than just playing basketball and bouncing the ball and putting points on the board. It was it was all those things. How'd you act? Did you embarrass your parents when you did that in terms of throwing the ball across the floor or something? You know, um, just I was more consumed with those things as a coach than the X's and O's and winning the games when it came to that part. Well, I think one of the, one of the more impressive things to me, um, one of the stories I heard about you was the night that you got your 500th career win, that you were there uh, at the C team score table taking taking the scorebook for the C team, and you know that's, we don't hear that every coach. And here you are in your famous you know you know black suit jacket that I, I heard you know just was a staple of your program for so many years. And there you are modeling that, like you said, you know you can't just tell them you got to do this. You got to be the model for these things. What are some other applicable ways that that you practically? Uh, how that practically looked in your program. And you're saying like, you know, we've got these rules and I need to live by them too. What what other ways did that look like in your program? Well, I was the one person that could be late to practices and stuff because I always tried to be late to make sure that the last kid wasn't. And so I do stuff like um, my assistants would call me whenever I was on the bus so I knew they were loaded up so we wouldn't have to discipline anybody uh, for not coming to games because there were times where kids missed the bus and there's one time four starters went down to 7-Eleven to have a hot dog before the, the bus left, and we left them at the school and drove to the game, and they, they followed us down in their truck and had to get – they sat in their street clothes with me the whole game right next to me and did not play at all, didn't even suit up. Um, we always locked the door at practice unless you told us you weren't going to be uh, – you were going to be late. If you didn't tell us, then you didn't get in. And we had some kids that ran down to see a friend at uh, – down in Lacey before practice, we had a later practice that day and they got back late. Door was locked. They were pounding on the door to get in. Players looked at me. I said, don't you dare. We're not going to do that. And so they didn't play in the league championship game. They didn't play. And so um, I just always tried to be consistent and follow through with what I, I said. Always try to be polite to other people. We really try to emphasize that. Well, I told you in our pre-talk that we went to elementary schools and talked to elementary kids about good habits, about being in school. And I told them, you cannot step up in front of a bunch of six-year-olds and tell them to study and do their homework when you don't. So you've got to be able to, if you're not going to sell it, you'll be able to tell them a mile away. And so I always just tried to be that example. Sometimes I didn't get to laugh with all the jokes. Sometimes I didn't get to do the funny things with the team. It comes with the territory. It's being a head coach. It's what has to happen. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, I think it ties into this one. How important was it was it for you to still connect with your players? Maybe it's not being friends with them, but just to be able to have a connect with them. Um, how important was you to to do that and build those relationships? And how did you go about fostering and developing those relationships while still being, like you said, your role? You're not to be their their friend. You're sometimes you got to be able to discipline them. How did you navigate also making sure that you're building these connections with them so that you know ten years down the road maybe they'll invite you to your, their wedding or They'll, they'll thank you for the things that you did. How did you navigate doing that? Well, one thing, obviously, any type of rule infractions that were, were dealt with punishment, those stories got around real quick. And so it were a lot of it you didn't really have to do in terms of developing relationships because the kids would talk about people that tried to do it. And, for example, 
one game, a kid came, we always talked about don't ever ask to start. If you want to start, then all you care about is that. You're not caring about the team or anything else. Well, this one kid, second year, he was really bothered. He was, coach, is there any way uh, you can tell me what I need to do to start? And I said, you can start. And so he said, I can't. Well, yes, you can. You can start next game. He goes, thank you. And so he came, he got warmed up, and they tossed the ball up, and he tipped it out of bounds, and the buzzer sounded, and the guy went in for him, and he sat down for the rest of the game. And so when kids asked about starting, they'd always go, don't ask him about starting. And they'd tell that story. I never had to worry about that anymore. It just developed its own own thing. That guy today, we are still best friends, and really, uh, I coached his, uh, excuse me, I taught his daughters and son and that in school. Um, and the thing was, I knew at that age, especially trying to coach kids, that sometimes it, you weren't going to be friendly with them. They weren't going to like you. It's that time like I told you, we had alumni games uh, during Christmas time. They would come up and say, coach, I understand now why you did what you did. Or can you give me some plays? And we'd all go out and eat afterwards. And they'd find out I wasn't this big you know, jerk that they thought maybe it was when you're in high school and that. And it's just um, a role you have to play. But I always said hi to him in the hallways. I always disciplined them if they were in the hallways after the bell. Um, they knew that was part of the factor. I wasn't going to be late to class because they couldn't be late to class. And they held me accountable and I held them accountable. And so there was a mutual respect. That was the biggest thing. A mutual respect was what I tried to get for every player on our team. I love that story. Especially, you know, the kid's going to start. Yeah, we'll start you. And this, this is... I hope you enjoyed starting for those first two seconds and playing that much time. I, I love that story. It's so, so great. Um, I'm curious that so we, we called this podcast, you know, lessons learned and how has the game changed? So I'm curious, um, you mentioned some of those qualities that you felt most important to be a great head coach. How did those qualities maybe change through the years to you? What, what does a, a successful coach do differently in today's game, you think, in his program that maybe was different than when you uh, first started coaching? How is that... How are those qualities maybe changed today, or at least how you how you go about um, how you go about enforcing some of these qualities and and um, the way you do it? How is how does that all change? You think in today's game than maybe when you first started? Let's talk about what the game was like before when I started. There was no three point line. There was no shot clock, and so the all shorts you were do, shorter. Yeah, shorts were shorter, and defend the paint. That's all you had to do, and you're in good shape. So um, that was a key factor. Over time, you run into a couple of items. Number one, kids don't play as much basketball as they do the video game basketball. Um, we went to state tournament. Some kids took the video game with them to play on TV. I said, aren't you going to be playing enough on the floor? But, you know, they don't – playing the game, you push button A or B to make something happen. You can't do that on the floor. So what ends up happening today, which I found was a big difference, is – you have to explain more why you're telling them to do what they do than you used to have to. You'd say, go here, and they go, okay, coach, I'll do that. And they knew why. Today, you got to go here because if this guy sets a screen, then you got to come off this and all that. And so it takes a lot more explanation for the kid to understand why he's doing what he's doing. And, and you have to sell him on the idea uh, that what you're asking him to do will be for the best of the team and himself. Um you also have to be ready to um, answer questions like, why can't we do what Golden State does? Why can't we shoot threes and stuff like that? Why can't we drive, penetrate, and kick and, and all those things? 
you have to have those answers ahead of time. You can't sit there and just kind of dream it up as they ask. And so you have to look at your program, what you're trying to do, what you're trying to develop. And, and then when they ask those questions, you're able to answer them honestly, according to what you know you want your program to be. And that's the, probably the biggest thing, just the explanation you have to give to everything. And also every kid thinking that he's a three-point shooter. Six-five guys, you stand on the square. Six-five guys now stand with the guards and go, give me the ball. Um, or they'll shoot the ball, and they say, I had to shoot the ball. There's only four seconds left on the clock. Is that why you took it from half court? Yeah, that's why I took it from half court. Um, it just allowed them to do things that they didn't want to do, and you have to teach them how to play to the clock so the, the right thing happens at the right time for you and what you want to have happen and so on. You didn't have to worry about that back in the olden days. You just took care. Of, I keep saying olden days, and I apologize for that, but <laughs> when the game was uh, simpler without all those different variations, you could come down and just literally, if you had a guard that could hold the ball, you could hold the ball, and nobody was going to get it. Yeah, I'm curious. As the, as the game got more complicated and it's more spaced out, and we're adding three point line, and you know every player wants to is, is now playing from behind the three point line now, including those six five guys. How how did your uh, your philosophies on your offense, your defense, how did those things? How did you adapt to some of those changes? And were you very welcoming to some of these things? Well, in the beginning, when the three point line came out. Um, it wasn't that hard because no one could shoot threes. They, they tried them, but they couldn't shoot them. They weren't good at it. As years develop, it's become more of a weapon. And when you used to have these sophisticated back pick offenses and screen and rolls and all that, now it's just a simple screen, penetrate, kick, or, or hit the guy rolling in the basket, and that's it. And if you watch all the teams, that's all they do. Call the guy up, it sets the screen. You come off the screen, you look for the three, you look for the drop pass to the guy rolling the hoop, or you look for the kick out from the guy who's trying to get in the corner. That said, it's gotten more complicated because players have gotten better at it. And so you have to defend it now where in past you just go, oh, let them shoot it. You're not going to make it anyway. Uh, you, have to, you have to prep for that. And so in that respect, it's gotten a lot easier because there aren't so many sophisticated offenses where they're running back picks and screens and double lows and all that. On the other hand, if they're good at that, it's really hard to stop. You know, you, you, you talked about you want Stelicum guys and that uh, you wanted your program to be built on players who wanted to be there and be Stelicum guys. To you, um, what were your philosophies on player development, developing those Stelicum guys? And, and how did you go about getting the most out of your players? And maybe how did that change your, the course of your career too and the kind of skills that were necessary to be great players in your program? Well, we're next to a military base, so we have to understand first off, the chances of having a kid for five years might not happen because they may be deployed or restationed someplace else with their parents. And so um, we would always go down and watch the junior high game to touch base with the kids. We'd run a little camp with them. And so we knew who the seventh and eighth graders were and ninth graders. And some of them would be gone by the time they came up to our uh, program, but a lot of them were still there. And uh, they had been, we'd been teaching them those skills in the camps of what we tried to do and what our philosophy was. And so then we also met with the junior high coaches and talked to them about what we wanted to do. And so it became this streamlined program of by the time they got up to us, you, the terminology was the same and everything else. So they knew what to do. And uh, if a kid went someplace else, well, you know, good luck, wish them well, love them, love them to death. But, um, if they stayed, they had an advantage over other people because they already knew what was going on in the program. 
how, how did you go about keeping your those youth programs you have organized and how involved were you in like those seventh and eighth grade teams and younger teams and you know that seems like it's such a big deal for coaches today too to just you know be in, included in all facets of of your development program you know from the youth stages through middle school and into high school how how much did you rely on on some of the youth programs and how how much were you organizing orchestrating some of that well in the beginning at our school we didn't have a c squad ninth grade team so um coach hayes my assistant myself we coached the team so we coached our varsity jvs and c squad together free of pay just to get the program started um, in the beginning, Coach Hayes was really big on uh, our youth program. He was awesome job he did getting things set up. As we went through the years, then we started seeing our players come back and run the youth programs in our communities with their kids and stuff like that. So it kind of took off from there. My role was to help any way I could, but I didn't want to interfere with what they were trying to do. I think it was important for them to keep their own autonomy and what they were trying to set up and develop their own coaching philosophy with the kids so that when they came up to us, they understood that every coach is a little bit different, but they're still trying to teach you the same things. And that way it would be confusing to them and they would understand what's going on. And in my last three years, I actually brought up a guy who was working with our youth programs. He went through the youth program, John Lemming, he played for me and then brought the youth program through and he was our C-squad coach while that group was coming through as sophomore, freshman, senior year. And so that was kind of fun that I let him kind of be there. And there's some times where he called me over and go, coach, here's what you have to say to him. This is what I used to say to him. And I said, okay, got it. A different term. That's fine. I'll, I'll use it. So uh, that was fun. That was fun. And I had Elmer Lago come back and coach with us. He was a 19 year Players coming back and coaching with you is really a fun experience to have. Any coach, if he has a chance to do it, it's awesome. That's so great. Uh, yeah, I'm curious about this one, too, because uh, we talked about relationships with parents and some players. But I think this is another another uh, sticking point for a lot of coaches today. Relationship with your administrators at school. Were there challenges you faced with your administrators over the years? And what would be your advice for coaches today in, in, in fostering good relationships and working relationships with um, admins at the school. I'll go back to the story of benching the MVP of the state tournament those first two games. I did not wait for them to tell me I had to do that. I, I was on top of it right away, and I took care of it myself before they even had to. A lot of the administrators loved that because they knew I would take care of my own program, and I wasn't going to ask them to, to bail me out or force me to discipline them when I didn't want to and stuff like that. So I always try to stay ahead of the game and to – react or make my decisions about it and then let the administration know so they didn't have to do it. And most administrators uh, love the fact that you're taking care of your own program. And if it makes sense and what you're trying to say to do, they'll go with you on it. And I was very fortunate to have some great people that saw that I was trying to do that, knew I was doing that. And so they let me coach and wasn't really a problem at all. Very supportive. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel like that's the case everywhere. But when you get in a situation like that, it sounds like it makes it really easy on a coach to have you know, administrators really back you up as well. Well, thirty-four years, I couldn't. It was great to be there. I'll tell you that. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, we'll end on this one. Uh, is there anything else that you would recommend to coaches today um, on not just how to get into coaching, but how to ensure you have a lasting career like you did, um, making the big time where you were at there at Stellicum? And how you use it to make a difference in the community and the players you um, you coach, 
what would what would you recommend to coaches today be able to foster um, that kind of experience in your program? Well, one thing I learned right away from Coach Bob Ross was you have to include your family and make sure when it's family time, it's family time. When it's basketball time, it's basketball time. And I always remembered that. And uh, there were two things he taught me, that and also I, one time he said when we were walking off the floor at halftime, I was yelling at him. I said, geez, we practiced this all week and they couldn't do it in the game. And he goes, isn't it amazing that you put your career in the hands of a 16-year-old kid? I don't know what you're doing. But uh, I always made sure that when it was family time, it was family time. If we're a state tournament, we're not playing. I'm not even watching the games. We're out walking the trail and swinging on the swings and having a good experience. Yes, my daughter's got a chance to have a piece of the net, even if they never went up, cut it down themselves. You got a chance to hold the trophy. Um, I always tried to make sure that that was important to do. And when I take my wife scouting, I tried to always give her a good time, although I'm sure some of the meals like Wendy's and stuff weren't that good. But um, we tried to call it a date and, uh, you know, go from there. But just trying to be uh, well-rounded and not get burned out on a lot of things. I still used to go scout every game one that I could instead of asking people for tapes because I wanted to see the teams in person. But I would leave at halftime because my daughters were going to bed and want to get back home to say goodnight to them. And, and so those are things you just have to be aware of and keep it in perspective. I thought about basketball a lot when I wasn't coaching during the week. But on the weekends, I tried to stay focused on just things I had to do as a dad, as a husband, and as a person just to keep my sanity. And it seemed to work pretty well for me. Uh, I don't know. Some people get absorbed and can't do that. But for me, it was very successful. And then you just got to really make sure you communicate. I mean, I saw a lot of coaches get divorces when I first started off. And I said, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And I just always made sure I communicated with my wife. Even if I knew she was going to get mad, you know, I'd say, found out there's a game tonight. They can go scout. You know, I, I know this is not going to be good. But if I go to the first half and come back, is that okay? And, you know, you just got to do that once in a while. So um, that in the summer league tournaments, when we go there, we stay at the hotels and the kids would swim around. Our daughters would swim around with the team and stuff and play games and go out to dinner. Just including them all in so it's part of the life. Yeah, then it tends not to burn out because it's, it's all inclusive. Uh, that's so that's so needed to hear, I think, for a lot of people today. You know, you talk about the expectations of burnout factor. Well, I think it's because they're just so absorbed with it that you can't separated with from your family time and it's, just, and it's so so needed to hear i think for for a lot of people and you just coach just so much appreciate uh, all your wisdom on this and all your time on this um coach uh, like i said thank you so much and hopefully we'll back have you back on here soon love to anytime time